I'd like to acknowledge the Warriors, um, and in particular all Aboriginal people. Welcome to Frontier War Stories. And before I go any further, I would like to pay my respects to all those Aboriginal people who fought in the Frontier Wars, which began as early as 1788 until the late 1830s. That's roughly 140 years Aboriginal people continued to fight. I also would like to uh, pay my respects uh, to Aboriginal people today uh, and non-Aboriginal people who share these stories. These are uh, the stories from the frontier and these are our war stories. Joining me on this episode of uh, Frontier War Stories is Joseph Toscano uh, from Melbourne, originally from Brisbane, based in Victoria now. And we're having a chat about uh, every year there's a commemoration to commemorate uh, Aboriginal people, in particular two Aboriginal people, two warriors from Tasmania, I believe, who are hung I know I'm gonna. I do apologise to to anybody who's offended by my pronunciation of their uh, names, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. Tanaminaway, um, and I and I and it's. I, I'm not gonna try and pronounce the other name, but Joseph, if you if you could introduce yourself, and then also um, let us know about these warriors, because uh, we'll get into uh, this book booklet that uh, you put out uh, quite some time ago as well. So thank you for joining me on uh, Frontier War Stories. Look, it's a pleasure to be on, the, on your podcast. I think it's important, it's obviously, which what, you do, what you're doing is exceptionally important. Um, we can't go forward without truth-telling, and uh, this is, a, I think, a particularly important um, Campaign, not just what we did, but what people are doing around the country. But just look, being an old bloke, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to put you in your place. But uh, please do so. I think, I think a lot of people think that the frontier wars began in 1788. Well, they began much earlier. And uh, you've got to remember that uh, in the Torres Strait, that uh, when uh, Torres went through in 1606, he um, was uh, what he did was he um, landed on Coconut Island and uh, kidnapped three women and uh, killed, uh, stole the dogs for food, and then took those three Torres Strait Island women all the way to Manila in the Philippines as a Spanish colony. Then in 1596, you had the uh, first uh, European foray in northwest Tasmania, which ended in the deaths of people. So, you know, for hundreds of years before 1788, there were quite brutal skirmishes between um, explorers and potential colonisers and Indigenous people. And let's not forget the accommodation the people in north, uh, very the north of the Northern Territory made with the Indonesian trepang fishermen who came across for hundreds of years to uh, fish trepang and actually camp uh, with permission for three, for three months. And a number of uh, Aboriginal women went across and uh, married fishermen and uh, lived in Indonesia. So there's, there's always been this cross-fertilisation uh, before 1788, but obviously, as you said, after 1788, everything took off and uh, massacres really were uh, an essential part of the colonisation process. Now, Tanaminoe and Mobo Hina were two men who were hung on the 20th of January in 1842. They were the first uh, executions in the state of Victoria, which is part of New South Wales, then, for the heinous crime of resisting white colonisation in in Victoria. Now, how did they get there? They were survivors of the 30-year war, which led to the almost the extermination of the over 20,000 people living on the island of uh, Tasmania. 
Tanaminawales from northwestern Tasmania, and uh, Morbohin was from Ben Lamond. Now, at the end of that war, George Augustus Robertson, who was played a handsome dividend, gathered the survivors, and they were, ex- yeah, they were expelled to Flinders Island, or about 325 of those survivors. Within three years, this was in 1839, went across within three years, sorry, 1838, within three years, the population had dwindled to 85. And Mr. Robertson and his sons looking for uh, another lucrative contract, because these were basically subcontractors, whose job it was to, you know, put down Aboriginal people, though a lot of people think of Robertson as a protector. He took 17 of those survivors at the behest of the New South Wales government to the new settlement the illegal settlement, even under European law, the illegal settlement in Melbourne to uh, civilise the Victorian blacks. And his major issue was, he said, that the price of property had doubled within a few years once the last Aboriginal people had been removed from the island of Tasmania. And he used the same tactic to get a job here in Victoria as the chief protector of the Victorian Aborigines and he brought 17, which is almost 25% of these people. Now, once rations from the New South Wales government were stopped, and they were stopped after about 12 months, uh, there was no food left for the survivors. Some were given to squatters to uh, toil the land. Others accompanied so-called European explorers, you know, in, in, up to uh, uh, Adelaide. And uh, some, like uh, Tanaminawe, Morbohina, Putirana, Planobina, and Traganini escaped into the bush, onto the traditional lands of the Bunurong people, into the bush in 1841 and began a, an extensive guerrilla campaign which drove squatters, hundreds if not thousands of squatters, five human beings, two men, three women, from the uh, Mornington Peninsula and the Daninong back into Melbourne. So that that was the that's the beginning of that story. Obviously, this is where it gets interesting as well. But before I get there as well, I just want to sort of acknowledge what you said at the beginning and sort of getting our head around this concept of frontier conflict and 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 when it started as well. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I always you know I I look back at seventeen seventy when when sort of Cook you know was coming through and you know had some skirmishes and you know uh, stole some <clears throat> artifact uh, stole some weapons uh, from Aboriginal people and you know I don't know if there's much conflict after that but you know I think it's yeah I think we have to sort of yeah acknowledge that you know prior to you know uh, pre seventeen eighty eight that there was uh, this conflict as well um, and and I never really knew that about Torres as well when he went through the Straits. I knew that's where they, the island sort of, <clears throat> the region got its name, but I never knew that history. I'd love to look into that more as well and, and add this into this discussion of frontier uh, conflict um, as well. I think I think it's worthwhile because it was the uh, Torres Strait Islanders who bore the brunt of the European expansion because obviously the Europeans had been in Indonesia for over 500 years, the, the Dutch, uh, initially, uh, sorry, the, um, the Portuguese initially and then the Dutch They'd been there for four to five hundred years, and they used the Torres Strait as a passage, and they knew about uh, West Papua and uh, Papua New Guinea, and, uh, and and by 1871, most of the Torres Strait Islanders had been exterminated by various um, ships that would go through the Torres Strait, uh, seeking passage and seeking food, and uh, 
and uh, they were uh, quite uh, they brought on a quite a uh, strong resistance conversation. The only reason I know this is because my late wife, who died in 2017, was a Torres Strait Islander, and they've got a proud tradition of a resistance to colonisation and uh, resistance to the white uh, incursion into their land, like uh, obviously like all other Aboriginal people uh, across the islands and the and and, 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 and the continent of Australia. So you, you know it is it, it's, it's a continuing thing, and it's interesting that we were the Aboriginal people in northern northern um, northern territory were actually able to make an accommodation, which was beneficial to both sides with the Indonesian Japan hunters, which lasted. Uh, they had a treaty and they had. Uh, which lasted uh, for you know for over 300 years before the white colonists came in and uh, broke that up. And there's, the, the, these, there's been a documentary about 20 years ago which actually reunited Aboriginal people, uh, women who'd gone into Indonesia with their relatives back in the uh, Northern Territory because these people had never forgotten. So there is a huge amount of information uh, regarding uh, that part. But mm. obviously, the further south you come, the less information there is and the less interest there is. So we're at this stage. The 25th of January. 20, 20th of January, and there's a band of Aboriginal people beginning or participating in uh, acts of sort of resistance as well. So how long does this sort of campaigning go for before... It went for 10 weeks. 10 weeks it was so a very... Yeah, it was a very sophisticated campaign. Remember, these were survivors of the 30-year war. The local Aboriginal people had no idea although there'd been a brief settlement at Sorrento in 1803, 30 years previously. They had no idea what was going to happen to them and the brutality that was going to descend on them. But these were survivors. These were the last survivors of a 30-year frontier war. I mean, uh, Tanaminui, I think, was 12 when his uh, mother was abducted uh, by sealers in northwest Tasmania. So they had, they knew what was in but they knew the white man's ways. They knew about firearms. They knew about how to, uh, and they had their indigenous ways. Because people think of Australia as some vast, you know, uninhabited thing. But see, the Mornington Peninsula was quite interesting in Dandong because the Bunurong had been there for over 60,000 years and continued to be the traditional owners of that land. And uh, the Bunurong Foundation, you know, represents uh, Bunurong here in, um, in Victoria. But there are all these tracks that used to cross the marshes, which they had used for tens of thousands of years. And obviously, the Tasmanian Aborigines were familiar with the indigenous way of living, and they were familiar with the white man's way. So they were a formidable combination. But considering the brutalities they had been exposed to, it was a very civilised war. What they did is they uh, came up to a squatter's hut, uh, put everybody out, got the guns, got as much flour and uh, sugar and tea as they could carry with them. Then they burnt a hut because they wanted to drive the squatters back. But they didn't actually kill anybody initially. They didn't kill any women. They didn't kill any children. They didn't kill any of the men. I mean, their job, what they were hoping was to cause an uprising among local Aboriginal people to, to join them because they understood they couldn't you know, survive um, for long. The three women were just as brave and even braver than the two men. And it was a combination of the five of them and their experiences. And for 10 weeks, they caused such consternation. Not only was the police sent, the army was sent, um, posses were sent uh, to try to um, capture them. 
because they were acts what everybody was concerned about that there would be a general uprising in Victoria. You don't read that in the lo- in the local accounts, but if you read between the lines, as you have to in the you know, in this history, you can see that that's what everybody was concerned about because the squatters were. And remember, squatters weren't poor people. The squatters were the sons of the rich. See, maybe I should explain this. A lot of people are a bit confused. See, what happened with colonisation in Victoria is the sons of the rich from England, which was at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, were sent across there and they were given huge parcels of land by the government. They then employed ticket-of-leave men and women, ex-convicts, on their farm for a pittance. And they made a killing... Uh, growing sheep and exporting the wool back to the satanic mills in uh, in uh, industrial England. So when we talk about squatters, we're not talking about uh, people who've got no assets, but these were people who had huge tracts of land because 700 squatters by about 1846 owned the whole of Victoria. They uh, had huge tracts of land which was given to them by the government of the day. And so these people were actually driven out of these settlements back to Melbourne. So you can imagine the consternation in Melbourne. Uh, and you've got to remember that most of the people in Melbourne initially were illegal settlers, as far as European laws is concerned, that came from Tasmania because the, the British government had not settled Tasmania. It was uh, entrepreneurs like Batman and Faulkner who came across in the ship Enterprise to settle uh, Victoria. Sorry, to settle Victoria. So, so most of them were Tasmanians initially, and they understood how difficult it was to eradicate the indigenous population in Tasmania or attempt to eradicate the indigenous population in Tasmania. And they were shit scared of these five individuals. Two men, three women. Tanaminoi was legally married under European law to Planovina, and Traganini was involved in a relationship at that stage with Tanaminoi. So even if you take out the indigenous part of this, this is one of the great stories of our time, which has been buried and forgotten. This is a handful of people involved in a guerrilla campaign against overwhelming forces. It's a, it's a story of love. It's a story of courage. It's a story of, of empathy and sympathy because they showed sympathy, sympathy to the people that they were dispossessing. Uh, the squatters they were dispossessing, they didn't, they didn't actually ever receive, you know, Tasmanians, never. I remember chatting with Frank Carr um, and he, I remember just talking to him as well and, and we were talking about this concept of like this economic warfare that Aboriginal people uh, in different parts of the country waged against settlers and, you know, like this was always sort of the first line of resistance or, or, or act of resistance that Aboriginal people would participate in to get rid of, you know, a lack of a word, foreigners from their land. One, because they're breaking of uh, our local Aboriginal law as well. Obviously not knowing, or, or I, guess, I guess Aboriginal people knew the importance of country and what it provided people, not just them, but, you know, the, the, these whole new people who were doing this sort of you know, alien form of 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 farming to them, uh, uh, to the land, not just with uh, uh, with cattle, but sort of you know their, their crops as well. Was this were these tactics sort of used by these five people? You know, this sort of you know burning crops. You mentioned I think they burn a hut down, but they may let everybody escape as well. Yes, look, two things. Now remember, this is a guerrilla band of five people. They were, they were using classic guerrilla 
um, tactics, which means you surround your enemy, you burn down their infrastructure, and so the enemy moves off. Now, remember, these are strangers. They're not Bunurong. They're remnants of the Tasmanian Aborigines in a foreign land as far as they're concerned, but they had obviously similar cultural things. Now, what they did understand was the power of money, and part of their strategy was to burn any money that they found because they knew that if the squatter could not pay his workers, that the workers would leave. So that was that was, that was an economic strategy they used. They burnt any money they found. They also took as much food away uh, from the huts, not just for their own use, but they were storing food for a bigger war. And they understood that the, uh, obviously European settlers didn't really could, couldn't live off the land. And if you flour and sugar and damper flour and sugar and uh, tea and other basic necessities that they wouldn't stay. They would go back to uh, to Melbourne. So that was the tactic they used. But they moved, and the reason they survived for over 10 weeks, and the tragedy is it wasn't just that soldiers and police and vigilantes chased them, but we also had Aboriginal black trackers, who Aboriginal, Victorian Aboriginal black trackers, who were hired by the government of the day to track these people. So they were moving between 25 to 30 miles a day on foot using the traditional pathway. So they, they weren't interested in killing cattle or, burn, or uh, burning crops. They didn't have time for that. I mean, what they wanted to do was strike terror in the region by burning down as many of the huts and houses that had been established. Now, the other thing they were concerned, and obviously this this respect for human life. Only two people died during this whole affair over 10 weeks, and they were two men who were sealers who were uh, crossing across from, um, I think, Bush Rangers Bay. Uh, they were going, uh, walking to Melbourne, who were caught in the crossfire at one stage, and, uh, and uh, two sealers, but nobody else was killed in the whole affray. And even the five people, they were eventually, Tanaminoi, Morbohina, Planamina, Putirana and Truganini were eventually tracked down by black trackers and their camp was surrounded by the time dogs which they had with them started barking and everybody shot into this little encampment and it's a miracle nobody was actually killed or seriously injured and they were arrested on the 20th of November 1842. So it was a, a classic guerrilla warfare but they weren't small, it was a small band and it's a small band basically trying to strike terror in the region. And what they wanted was the Victorian Aborigines, uh, the Boonarong and other people in that area to join them in this struggle. Because you've got to remember, when they initially came, they were introduced to Victorian Aborigines. They had a number of corroborees. There were fireworks. There were celebrations. Because these were going to be the great saviors. They are going to civilise the Victorian race. So there was that interaction and uh, initially, but it didn't seem to go much further than that, whether it was a language difficulty, whether it was the amount of disease which was occurring in the Aboriginal population in Victoria, especially around Melbourne, where you've got stories of starvation, dysentery, typhus, syphilis, and the list, the list goes on and on, and people just dying in large numbers, you know, day after day after day, and they weren't in a position to resist. I don't know, but at the end of the day, they were captured and the five of them were captured, and there was obviously great rejoicing amongst the European population. How many camps or um, 
or, or stations or you know what's established at the moment uh, in Victoria? What's set up there and uh, um, how much? What is it that they're sort of attacking? Well, they're basically attacking the squatters as they spread out of Melbourne as they start acquiring more and more land as they kill the local Boonarong and the local Aboriginal people and start taking over their land. Basically. Mm. So. Now, their area of uh, where they were involved, because remember, they're, they're on foot. They don't have horses. They, I mean, the colonisers have horses. They don't, they have, they're on foot. There's five of them. And they're travelling along traditional pathways, which have been created by the Bunurong over thousands of years. So they were basically destroying infrastructure, which Europeans needed infrastructure in order to survive in a hostile environment. So they were destroying that infrastructure to drive them back into the city of Melbourne. At that stage, there's only about 8,000 people, 8,000 Europeans in the whole of Victoria. So, and they ranged all over the Mornington Peninsula, which means places like Rye, Sorrento, all those places up there, and then across the Dandenongs, right into the Dandenongs and a little bit into the Dandenong ranges, places like Ferntree Gully. So they were roaming across that quickly, because they knew that in order to survive, they had to move quickly because they were being chased by everybody. They were being chased by soldiers who were on horses. They were being chased by squatters who were on horses. They were being chased by foot police They were being, who were being led by uh, Aboriginal black trackers. So that, uh, they knew that they had to be very mobile. So it would be an area about maybe about 100 kilometres by about 50 kilometres they ranged across. How many huts they burnt? I don't know, but, but what I do know is that hundreds, of, it was documented, if you look at the original material, documented that hundreds, if not over a thousand people fled, that's Europeans, yeah, yeah. fled the area back into Melbourne for protection. Before we get to the date of their execution, um, you know, they're on the run, they're getting tracked by Aboriginal trackers, as well as sort of authorities on horseback. Um, how do they catch them and when do they catch them? Um, and sort of how long are they held um, back in prison before um, in sorry in prison before they are executed? Well, it's in- interesting. They were um, they were sleeping in one of their encampments. They actually had dogs with them because they understood that you know dogs would give them forewarning of anything that was coming in. And they were actually uh, encamped near the beach, and they'd been tracked to that area. And what happened is about 60 people, mainly soldiers and police and vigilantes with guns, crept up around the encampment about 4 o'clock in the morning and then they fired about 60 shots into the encampment hoping to kill the five of them. Now, two of them uh, escaped into the bush. I think it was the two men escaped into the bush and the women were caught. And the men were told that the women would be shot if they didn't surrender. So they actually did surrender. And uh, then they were taken to the... They were captured on the 20th of November, 1841. And it took six days for them to walk back in chains uh, to Melbourne. And they were put on trial on the 21st of December, 1841. It was a very interesting trial because it raised a lot of issues regarding um, legality of their arrest because 
a Supreme Court judge had been sent from New South Wales, because so Victoria was then part of New South Wales, to Melbourne, Judge Willis, uh, who was a little bit of a um, rebel, and some people thought he was a bit crazy, and he presided over the trial, and there were the five of them were tried, and they were tried for murder, and the five of them were tried. And he and the defending um, attorney for the uh, Aboriginal people was actually Redmond Barry, the same Redmond Barry who became Attorney General, the same Redmond Barry who tried Ned Kelly in 1880, in, uh, same Redmond Barry. And he was a fresh-eyed uh, barrister from Ireland who was trying to make a reputation. He raised an exceptionally important point. Whether the court had jurisdiction over these people because a treaty had not been signed with the colonised because he had come from places, other European, other British colonies where treaties had been signed between the colonised and the colonisers. So he raised he raised this point and Judge Willis understood the point because he had also come from the same background and he made the determination that uh, although a treaty hadn't, hadn't been signed, that the trial could go ahead. So the trial went ahead, only went ahead for about three hours. But it was it's interesting. We think of a trial where you get the chance to speak. But under British law at that particular point in time, the accused, if they were Indigenous, could not actually speak to the court and could actually not make a statement. They could only make a statement through a white person. So that means that they would have to rely on the people they fought against to make a statement on their behalf. And this is this went on for a number of decades. Whereabouts in uh, Melbourne uh, are these two men hung? Because up here in Brisbane, uh, where the gallows are, sort of located in uh, Post Office Square, um, it's, it's pretty much in the heart of the CBD of Brisbane. Tens of thousands of people, I swear, every week sort of walk past these areas uh, here in Brisbane, mm-hmm. um, not knowing... Not what just occurred to to Dundalee or other Aboriginal people. I guess not many people realise that uh, the extent of of this area in uh, Victoria and in Melbourne. Whereabouts, you know, are we talking about where these uh, well, men were hung? Well, I'll may backtrack a bit. Uh, look, we look. I'm the convener of the Tanaminaway Tanaminaway Commemoration Committee, and we were set up. I first found out about these men in, um, I think it was about 2000, when I, I was reviewing a book a week for a magazine I was producing, and I came across a book, um, Cap, it was called Jack of Cape Grim, which was another name for uh, Tanaminaway. And I read the story, and being a radical activist, I, I found it a fascinating story, not just in terms of resistance, but in terms of all the human emotions which were incorporated into the story there. Just they, they span the whole range of human emotions. And um, I initially wrote this booklet that brings some facts together in an easily readable form, which people could read in, you know, half an hour or so. And then we set up the um, Mobile Hina Commemoration Committee, and we actually called it, our, our slogan was, Lest We Forget. This is in 2004. Lest We Forget. Because we've got a very interesting, we've got a very good grasp of Australian history. And the tragedy is, and I'll answer your question in a minute, the tragedy is that every year and constantly we celebrate men and women who've been sacrificed on foreign fields for this country in various wars. Most of them have nothing to do with 
national defence or freedom or you know that type of stuff. But for this country, and we hold them up and we celebrate them, but we don't celebrate those tens of thousands of men, women, and children who died defending their country, their language, their culture, their way of life. Mm. So when we set up the Tullamino and Morbohina Commemoration Committee, we called it Lest We Forget. That was our slogan. We found out where the hangings took place. The hangings took place on the highest point because if you're going to have a public hanging in the day when you don't actually have television cameras and radio stations, you need people to see what's happening. So you find the top of the hill is a great place for a public hanging set up your gallows. Now, if you go to the old Melbourne jail in, uh, in uh, Melbourne, which is very close to the city centre, it's near the corner of Victoria Parade and Franklin Street, we were very fortunate to find a little roundabout where the hanging actually took place, which belonged to the Melbourne City Council, not to the uh, Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, RMIT. It didn't belong to them because they're very avarice as far as their land is concerned to belong to the Melbourne City Council. So we set up a campaign which went over 12 years uh, where we gathered support and we did it in various ways which we can talk about later on uh, to have a monument erected at that very spot. Now the old Melbourne jail is important in terms of the number of people who go there. It's also important because a new new, uh, railway station, underground railway station has been built next to the memorial and there'll be thousands of people will be flooding across the face of the memorial and it's quite a significant memorial it's not just a few statues it's a significant piece of ground it's got um, healing herds and plants on it uh, it's quite an, an extensive memorial which people should should have a look at but it's not just that what we're interested in I mean we've got this right we've got it's the first major monument uh, to the frontier wars in a capital city in this country. And it took a lot of struggle and it was very hard and it wasn't easy. It was very, very hard. And you have to persevere. But the key is we found the spot, we did our, we had our history and then we began our campaign and we worked with the radical elements within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community as well as the Bunurong because this struggle took on their lands, as well as we had some minimal, it was a little bit, we had some association with uh, Northwest Tasmania and their, their traditional lands. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a big undertaking and it took a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of energy, and it was a political campaign because on two, twice, in 2004 and 2008, I actually ran as Lord Mayor of on Melbourne and that was one of my major platforms to have a monument erected to the frontier wars. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about people protesting, it's about using the systems, finding uh, like-minded people who are in positions of authority and bending their arms over a period of time to get what you want. What I want to sort of get onto now as well in sort of this last back end of the conversation is um, you mentioned some interesting points you brought up, you know, the 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 acknowledgement or the lack of acknowledgement when we talk about frontier wars um, you know, and Anzacs um, as well. But then also like we have these public figures, you know, um, where you know, who uh, Australia celebrates for their, you know, 
hero heroism or their outlaw sort of image and and, and sort of one of the biggest names is Ned Kelly. He's been immortalised in movies, quotes. You, you could say sort of one of the most iconic sort of figures in our history. You, you sort of spoke to this earlier as well, but I'd love to sort of, you know, uh, get you to sort of uh, speak about this a bit more as well. Well, it's the difference between a rebel and a revolutionary. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and obviously, Kelly obviously was a rally. two different things. That, you know, exactly. One... Ned Kelly, although some people say that Ned Kelly had revolutionary tendencies and there's the Werithery, whatever it's called, document, which was supposedly written by him because he did have the Irish rebel roots and he was in somehow related to the Eureka Rebellion. It's the same as the Eureka Rebellion. The Eureka Rebellion has been written out of Australian history because these people were revolutionaries. They wanted to make major change. Now, we, can, we can incorporate rebels because we owe them nothing it's a story we can set up myths about a rebel but if you start acknowledging the frontier wars you change the political and cultural and social landscape of this country and issues like treaty compensation then become part of the conversation of the conversation but if you lionize a rebel you can make T-shirts and hats and make a buck out of it. It really means nothing. They found Ed Kelly's body at the uh, Pentridge and, uh, you know, have, have reburied him. It doesn't... But could you imagine if they found Tanaminoi as a Morbohina's body? There's a cult, there is a political element to it. And that's the difference between a rebel and a revolutionary. And an Indigenous revolutionary is a much more difficult situation to deal with than a, say, a Eureka revolutionary because the whole question of occupation, treaty, compensation, reparation, all these then become topics, and that's why there's that resistance. And when we fought to have the Tanaminawa Mobile Hina Commemoration uh, Monument set up, these were the issues that those in authorities were concerned. It's like the Mabo decision in 1992, on the 3rd of June 1992, obviously... It didn't go the full way, and we all we all acknowledge that. But the Marvo decision caused consternation amongst this uh, owners, landowners in this country, especially leaseholders, pastoral leaseholders, and because it meant that if Indigenous Australians had, under British law, under Australian law, rights to compensation because of their prior occupation of this land, it changes the whole landscape. And that's why there's that huge resistance. And I say to people, if you're involved in the story, you're involved in the struggle for a treaty or black deaths in custody, or if you're involved in other struggles, Indigenous struggles, you need to come back to the struggle of the frontier wars because every inch of this land is soaked in the blood of tens of thousands of men, women and children who died defending that land. There are stories... Everybody listening to this program, to your podcast, there are stories for every inch of this land. You need to find those stories, put them in a document in a, in a simple form, find out who the, who the who resisted, and then you need to begin campaigns to acknowledge that resistance. This is already happening in Victoria. It's starting to you know, spread out. We have a ton of Minway and Morble in commemoration in Faggy now, where they actually were involved in some of that resistance. We have people fighting to have statues of Macmillan 
actually say one of the colonizers responsible for many massacres of the Kurnai in, in Gippsland to be removed. We've got questions now about you know, a treaty. There's a negotiations for a treaty in Victoria. But again, the frontier, the acknowledgement of the frontier wars is the beginning, in my opinion, is the beginning. And we've always had a, in the last few years, we've, since the monument was set up, we've, we've changed our focus. We would like to see the 20th of January, which was the day that they were hung by the British, using their courts, using their laws, for the heinous crime of resisting white colonisation, to be National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island Freedom Fighters Day. And when on Anzac Day, when people go to the various monuments to pay respects to the dead, no, no problem with that whatsoever, none whatsoever, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and European settlers and non-European migrants, you know, from Asia, Africa, whatever, can come along and pay the respects to these freedom fighters. And uh, that's the nature of the campaign. It's not just about one little monument. There are monuments everywhere, and it's about bringing forward in the public imagination the concept of the need for a treaty, the need for compensation, and the need to you know, lance this car buckle, which is, you know, making it very difficult living in this country for a lot of people. And uh, that's why the front of the wars, you'll find people in authority will resist any attempt tooth and nail to establish a monument because it is a visual reminder of what happened. The conversation that we're having now, um, you put out um, in a booklet... How can people uh, obtain a copy of uh, this amazing sort of resource that you do have? Um, you know, and is there sort of anywhere else where you'd like people to go to to sort of follow uh, what you're doing um, with the committee and sort of future commemorations? Well, look, we have we have a commemoration at midday every 20th of January. That's the day they were hung, and we have hundreds of people, and we're, we've also there's commemorations. Now in Northwest Tasmania for Tamaninaway, it's commemorations in Montagi, and as I said, it's spreading slowly, but it's spreading. Now, if they want to get hold of the book, they go to the website Tunnemore T U N E R M A U L. Now, obviously, if you can't, if you can't get a, if you're not computer literate, and I'm very strong about this, you can always write me a note. Just say Joe at post office. Box 20, Parkville, 3052, and I'm happy to send you out a copy for nothing because, you know, none of us have ever been paid for anything we've done regarding this, and that's the key. You need to have volunteers who've got the fire in their heart. And I'm not a historian. I don't pretend to be a historian. I'm somebody who is interested in achieving reconciliation based on justice, not charity. Now, what I have done and what the committee did and how we set up the committee and what my life wife did, any interested group can do. And when I say, when you say, where should you go? Go to your local library. Find out what Indigenous groups are around in your part of the world. Definitely. Set up an set up an appointment. Have a chat. See if you can set up a committee. Now, 
one of the important things is you need you need a patron. If you're going to set up a committee, you need a, you need an indigenous patron that is involved in that. And we we had uh, Auntie Carolyn Briggs from the Bunurong Foundation who continues to be our patron who supported us. You know, because see, in these struggles, you, you don't, you, it's not just the authorities you've got to worry about. There's other Aboriginal groups. There's petty jealousies. It just goes on and on and on. And if you've got any radical elements, you know, have a chat to them. And the last mm. thing to remember is it takes time. Don't think it's going to happen in two minutes or a year. It takes time. So when you get committee members, get members who are willing to do the hard work and the fact is, nobody gets paid. Nobody's ever been paid a cent. We don't ask for payment, and that's what gives us our strength, because we're there because we want that justice. Mm, oh, definitely, definitely. You know, um, it's amazing um, the the sacrifice um, and struggle that people like yourselves and in other areas put into sort of holding up. Um, these stories for somebody like myself, um, who has you know a really keen interest in this period of time, uh, you know, to record it. But you know, um, I'm very thankful that the podcast has been received the way it has has been so far. It was never always about getting so many people to listen. For myself, it was you know about sort of obtaining more knowledge about what what has actually happened and give people the opportunity to sort of be a part of reawakening, retelling and resharing these stories. Um, and, 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 you know, I'm sure in a way that's sort of something that yourself and many others uh, would have wanted to do as well. So, you know, like I said before, big thank you for having this chat, but then also doing the hard yards in putting this stuff together uh, yourself uh, the Aboriginal people involved uh, in being a part of the committee, but then also being a part of putting this amazing work out and, you know, tirelessly turning up as well, uh, which, you know, I can't urge people enough. You know, if we're going to sort of talk about um, the 26th of January and if we're going to, you know, be about sort of showing solidarity on that day, um, I think another way to sort of show... Uh, solidarity with Aboriginal people is by acknowledging these people, these individuals, these groups uh, for what they did do and uh, how they did it as well. And, and, you know, for some, this was their last living... You know, we're talking about two Aboriginal men's last living sort of memory. Um, You know, they they, they literally put it on the line. So, um, you know, for people listening, please, you know, check this, check this resource out. You know, this podcast is, you know, in in a way is a resource for people to use. I do urge people to use it uh, accordingly as they please to continue this conversation. If people want to become a patron uh, to support this podcast, you know, to continue, you know, doing this and and eventually once things die down from COVID, you know, go to these different areas and communities and, and, and record on the ground in these areas, please become a patron and, um, you know, uh, give what you can. But, you know, Joseph, thank you very, very much um, for coming uh, on Frontier War Stories and telling us, you know, um, about the amazing work that you have been doing um, down here in Victoria. I guess I'll just leave you with sort of the last words, you know, um, you know, the importance of continuing uh, these stories. Um, why is that important to you? 
as I said, um, if you don't acknowledge the path, you can't walk forward. You can't reconcile. We can't walk forward as a people, not as a nation, but as a people. So we need to acknowledge the past to understand the present and change the future. I mean, they're all interlinked. You can't understand the present without knowing where you come from and and the past. And you can't make plans for the future if you don't know where you're going. So the past indicates to us what needs to be done to change things and to move forward as one people, not people involved in continuous struggles against each other. And um, hopefully before I die, um, we'll see some progress. But we've seen extraordinary progress. I remember when I first got together with my late wife, Ellen Jose, in 1974, just the fact that a European man and an Aboriginal, a Torres Strait Islander woman came together was seen as shocking. And uh, the racism then was just extraordinary. And there have been there's been progress in terms of social interaction and cultural progress, but as far as reconciliation is concerned, whether there are committees everywhere, it hasn't moved forward. And my belief is, is because we haven't 